0: Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you.
1: Listen to that. Do you hear that?
0: Hear what? The... Fire truck? No, no,
1: no, 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 no! Listen closer. Really listen.
0: Cars honking. People everywhere. I, I'm not sure what I'm listening for. This. Just
1: listen. It's the sound of the city. That beautiful music of the city itself. That intoxicating sound that's been fantasize and immortalize in so many great works.
0: Okay, Mr. Philosopher. What's gotten into you?
1: I'm just riding the high from last night. I mean, this is the music of my two favorite composers, Bernstein and Gershwin. In their music, you can literally hear New York. You don't even have to be here to actually just hear it and see it.
0: You know, that's a great example of how two things can be
1: true. Yes! The two men in my life truly define the sound of the city.
0: Uh, um, I'm sorry, the two men in your life?
1: Yeah, you've heard me reference this. If they were alive today, Gershwin would be my husband, and Bernstein would be my pool boy.
0: Wow, um, as your wife, I just, I just don't know how to feel.
1: You should feel loved, especially on account of the fact that I've
0: never met them, and I have met you. Okay, Mr. Man, that's enough out of you. Let's keep moving so we can get down to the Zoomies before they close. The fur kids will never forgive you if you come back empty-handed.
1: Right you are.
0: Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez.
1: Today we are going to be discussing the toe-tapping show, Nice Work If You Can Get It.
0: So, hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting.
1: Hello everyone, and Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We got a little rhythm, a rhythm, a rhythm that pitter-pats in our brain. And we'd like to share it with you as we talk about the irresistible show, Nice Work, if you can get it.
0: The show, which starred two Broadway legends and the music of the great George Gershwin himself, shuffled onto Broadway to great fanfare.
1: But we are already rushing the melody. Let's take it back and start at the beginning.
0: The musical was initially produced in 2001 at the Goodspeed Opera House, titled They All Laughed, with the book by Joe DiPietro, the direction by Christopher Ashley. After receiving mixed notices, the new collaborators and producers then became involved.
1: A workshop was held in November 2007, featuring Harry Connick Jr. and Aaron Dilly. At that time, the show was titled Heaven on Earth. The musical was first scheduled to debut at the Colonial Theater in Boston, running from December 2008 through January of 2009. The production was expected to open on Broadway in the spring of 2009 with Connick Jr. However, in 2008, it was announced that the musical was officially postponed due to a change in the producing team. Connick ultimately left the project.
0: This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. The book by Joe DiPietro. Music by George Gershwin. Lyrics by Ira Gershwin. Inspired by material by Guy Bolton and P.G. Wodehouse. Directed and choreographed by Kathleen Marshall. Scenic
1: design by Derek McLean. Costume design by Martin Pacledines. Lighting design by Peter Kazworski. Sound design by Brian Ronan, projection design by Alexander V. Nichols, hair and wigs by Paul Huntley, and makeup by Angelina Avalon.
0: The show would arrive at the Imperial Theater on April 24, 2012, and play for just over a year and for 478 performances, closing on June 15, 2013.
1: After closing on Broadway, the show would go on to mount a U.S. tour as well as productions in London and Australia.
0: The production would garner 10 Tony Award nominations and saunter away with two that evening.
1: Best featured actor in a musical for Michael McGrath, who played Cookie McGee. And best Featured actress in a musical for Judy Kaye, who played Duchess Estonia Doolworth.
0: So, let's get into the heart of the story.
1: It's 1927 in the midst of a riotous bachelor party for the oft-married Jimmy Winter. Outside, a trio of bootleggers, Cookie, Billy, and Duke, are trying to figure out where to hide the 400 cases of gin they have stashed on their boat. As a stranger approaches, Duke and Cookie rush off.
0: A drunken Jimmy staggers and comes across the pants-wearing Billy and is immediately smitten. He explains his plight. He must marry someone respectable or his mother will disinherit him, so he's marrying someone he doesn't truly love.
1: Billy isn't all that interested in his tale of woe until he reveals that he has a huge Long Island beach house that he never uses, so she swipes his wallet to discover the address. Jimmy assumes Billy is falling for him, but Billy insists that love is for suckers. Jimmy vehemently disagrees
0: jimmy passes out and billy focuses on this interesting man unconscious on the ground before her cookie and duke rush back on and billy tells them that she found a place to store their bootleg a long island beach house
1: a police whistle pierces the air and the bootleggers scatter senator max evergreen and chief barry enter along with duchess estonia Dolworth who has brought along her vice squad and vows to rid society of its greatest evil.
0: The next morning, Billy, Cookie, and Duke have stored their 400 cases of gin in the cellar of Jimmy's Ritzy Beach House. Eileen Evergreen, the finest interpreter of modern dance in the world, enters with Jimmy. They were married that morning, and they are on their honeymoon, though Eileen has yet to allow Jimmy to touch her.
1: Cookie disguised as the butler enters and they naturally assume he's their servant. They send him off and Eileen tells Jimmy that she's ready for the honeymoon shenanigans to begin. As soon as she takes a bath, she exits into the house as Billy enters, stunned to see Jimmy.
0: Jimmy has no memory of meeting her last night and Jimmy flirts with her. Billy confesses that she's never been kissed. Strictly for educational purposes, Jimmy kisses Billy, and she realizes what she's been missing.
1: Four and a half hours later, Eileen is still bathing.
0: In the ritzy living room, Cookie and Billy devise a plan for Billy to distract Jimmy from the 400 cases of gin in the cellar. Billy runs off as Jimmy enters, followed by a gaggle of chorus girls who invite him for a group swim, which Jimmy almost accepts.
1: Eileen enters with a flourish, and just as she is about to let Jimmy touch her, he receives a telegram revealing that his last wife has refused to sign the annulment, and an irate Eileen storms off to get her father.
0: That night in Jimmy's ritzy bedroom, Billy breaks in and tries to seduce him badly. Chief Barry, who has been pursuing Billy, barges in to arrest her. But Jimmy convinces him that Billy is actually his newest wife, and Billy and Jimmy are forced to spend the whole night together in his bedroom.
1: The next morning, Jeannie, a happy-go-lucky course girl, comes upon Duke, a lug from New Jersey, and mistakes him for an actual English Duke. Duke, who is perpetually nervous around women, tries to escape, but Jeannie does everything in her power to get him to notice her.
0: In the ritzy living room. Jimmy and Billy realize that they are hopelessly in love, but Eileen returns with her father, the ultra-conservative cent- Senator Evergreen, and her aunt, the Duchess Estonia Dolesworth, who, two demand that Jimmy and Eileen have a, a legal wedding.
1: Jimmy has no choice but to marry Eileen, and Billy pretends to be a cockney maid so she can stick around and guard the bootleg. As Eileen belines towards the cellar to get the wedding china, Jimmy and Cookie frantically distract the wedding party away from the basement as the curtain falls.
0: Act two starts on the ritzy terrace where the vice squad and chorus girls revel. Billy enters and realizes she'll never be happy as the dancing revelers around her. Cookie and Duke enter, and since they're now all disguised as servants, they plot how they can get the impending wedding luncheon over and done with as quickly as possible.
1: The Duchess barrels on to instruct Cookie in the finer points of luncheon preparation. She insists on hiring a string quartet for entertainment, but Cookie has other ideas. As Billy sets the ritzy luncheon table, Jimmy makes one last attempt to appease her, but Billy will have none of it.
0: As the luncheon begins, Cookie and Duke frantically serve the luncheon guests and the Duchess continues to annoy Cookie, who spikes her lemonade with gin. Billy entertains them with, uh, entertains them all with a Cockney song, Hanging Around With You, which mainly serves as an excuse to keep pouring hot soup on Jimmy's lap. But Billy accidentally pours some steaming soup on Eileen, who immediately fires her.
1: The Duchess, now happily drunk, defends Billy and reveals a deep secret as she grabs onto Cookie, climbs on the luncheon table, and swings from a chandelier. After he drags off the Duchess, an angry Jimmy calls Billy a common criminal, and they realize that they can never be together.
0: Jimmy goes to prepare for his wedding as Jeannie enters looking for Duke, who Billy accidentally reveals isn't a real Duke. Jeannie is furious, so Duke tries to win her over with a poem, but Jeannie rushes away.
1: In the ritzy bedroom, Cookie is dressing Jimmy for his wedding as Billy enters to return his wallet. Jimmy and Billy both realize that this is the last time they'll ever see each other.
0: The chorus girls and vice squad set up the wedding.
1: As Senator Evergreen presides, Eileen makes her very grand entrance. But just before vows are exchanged, Cookie and Duke rush in, pretending to be prohibition agents. Though Chief Barry quickly enters and reveals their true identities.
0: As they're arrested, Jeannie rushes in and proclaims her love for Duke. Then, the now sober duchess proclaims her love for Cookie. Still, Senator Evergreen insists the bootleggers must be arrested, but Jimmy's mother, Millicent, makes an appearance, revealing the true nature of her son's heritage. Senator er, Senator Evergreen is Jimmy's father.
1: The senator proclaims the day, a joyous one, and all are free to pursue their new and surprising loves. Jimmy realizes that Billy has rushed to the boathouse to sell away forever, and he rushes to swear his devotion to her. Millicent follows and reveals that she happens to be the biggest rum runner on Long Island, and she'd like Billy to marry her son and take over her business.
0: Billy happily accepts, and on the ritzy terrace under a starry night, love has blossomed, the bootleg is open, and the company celebrates their newfound joy. The The end. end. I'm just a girl, a wonderful girl. I'm the sweetest one in town. You can search for miles around. And not one like me can be found. So? This is the part where we talk about the things we like. This is the part? Right here?
1: This This is the the part. part. Okay. Well, then I arrived at the right moment then. Fantastic. Um, I like this show. I remember this being a good, old-fashioned, fun show. Just... Ritzy. It was really top drawer. Really, really top, top drawer. Draw. <laughs> no, it, it was just... It was that good, old-fashioned, fun humor. You know what I mean? Just
0: mm-hmm. your your
1: golden era, just...
0: Silly. Wah, yeah. yeah.
1: The music... Uh, very much reflected the kind of story we saw. Um, One that hearkened to yesteryear. I love that word, yesteryear. Um.
0: Well, and it definitely... I mean, having the jazz standards... uh, Some of the jazz standards came out as, you know, songs to be sung, but others of them graced their way through the musical theater reviews, um, which would eventually lead to the creation of the modern musical. So... Yes. um, You know, these songs... They kind of can be plugged and chugged in a way that can make a story.
1: Yes, they're not bound. Yeah. by... Yeah, they can. They, <clears throat> they're. It's like spices in a cabinet. They can be used in several different dishes. Exactly. they interchangeable. I, I, yeah. I um. I also just the dancing was amazing. I remember the dancing being really fabulous. Um. And and Judy and Michael who played uh Cookie and um.
0: Duke. No, or, uh, Duchess. Duchess, yes.
1: Uh, and they won their Tony, were absolutely
0: freaking hilarious. I remember they made the show for me. They, they were the my favorite part.
1: You know, you, you had Matthew Broderick and Kelly O'Hara, who were Billy and Jimmy. And look, they carried the show well, don't get me wrong. But in all good comedy, you have a straight character and you have the, the comedy, you have the ham, you know, the quirk, the joke, <clears throat> and... Jimmy and Billy were the straight character. They were the love story. That was where all the drama and the intensity were. Where Cookie and Duchess were just the wah-wah. The, we're going to tell you the joke on the side. Like, that was the side story in the best way possible. hmm And I remember, like, leaving that show, and I was like, I don't really want to be a Jimmy. I want to be a Cookie. Like, <laughs> that's the role. That's the fun part. That's, you know, that's that's where all the, the action's at. That, yeah. So it, it for me, yeah, it was it was just fun. It was one of those shows that, like, you don't walk away learning. You don't walk away. No one got hurt. No one got changed. Oh, God, no. Like, th- there was no, like, moral or anything. I mean, you didn't really even come out the other end and you are like, oh, my gosh, look how far we've grown. You literally, it's just, fun. it's such a 1920s kind of story where it's like, how did we get here? Oh, it's such an American story, so.
0: Um, I think one thing that is worth mentioning is Ritz, ritzy, the set.
1: I was see what ritzy. you're doing. We're breaking things down.
0: <laughs> we're gonna break things down. I thought down. you were going
1: down the, the way of like a snack cracker, and I was like, oh, I'd love a snack. Thank you. Yes. <laughs>
0: mm, no, I mean, um, the ritzy. Everything was ritzy. Just ritzy.
1: It was so cheesy. It
0: was so cheesy. I <laughs> mean, like the 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 set, the set. It was glamour and It was and opulent and... and... It was the 20s! It was the 20s. It
1: did remind me a lot of Lend Me a Tenor with how... Lavish? Tall and lavish, yes. You know, and I'm thinking about, like, that staircase that they had. And I'm mainly just thinking of, like, the color palette and the, the tallness of it. Like, as, as we were putting this together, even before we looked up pictures and whatnot, I just... Immediately, I was like, I, rem- I I, for some reason, my first thing, I remember that staircase and that. And then I was like, lend me a tenor.
0: Mm, mm, mm. The, the things that stick out in my mind really was the Ritzy Terrace. Like, yeah. that's the part I remember. I remember the shrubbery. I
1: remember. The shrubbery.
0: You know, the, the shrubbery. I know. I just,
1: <laughs> words we don't normally say on our podcast. We usually <laughs> talk about, you know, theater technical terms on that flat's. Stairs, nah, things are flying. Don't forget about the shrubbery. <laughs> Thank you to the horticulturist that was consulted on the show. Yes, That's shrubbery,
0: ritzy shrubbery.
1: Um, well, and and I'm going to you know move into the next section because I remember the set with the staircase and the opulence and all that, but I also remembered um, Billy's um, costume, those pants, those blue pants, mm, and that gorgeous. like handkerchief in her hair.
0: Mm-hmm. done up,
1: just her outfit. this reminded me a, a little bit of Reno Sweeney and anything goes a little, yeah, but it just Kelly O'Hara just looked so I don't want to say tomboy for the twenties, but do you know not do you, do you yes. know that look i'm I'm going after it just not feminine but feminine, that girl in pants mm-hmm. uh. Feminist,
0: maybe. I don't. I don't know what that that the the term I'm looking the for. The precursor, to uh, Rosie the Riveter.
1: Yes, because I mean, you know, it was a little bit scandalous, and she's in pants at this time, you know. Mm-hmm. But she looks so fat, and so that that look really stood out to me. And if I if if memory serves me right, Jimmy meets Billy in this like button-up shirt and tie with a sweater vest over it, and she's in this. She's in pants and a shirt, but she's also in, like, a an overcoat with a, a newsboy cap. Yeah. You know, but then when, when that comes off, we see she's in pants and a shirt, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, sloppy drunk guy, still kind of in the same thing, but she looks so 1920s chic, just, ah. Oh. So, you know, they were just... So gorgeous. And then you bring in the other ensemble members that had this flapper look to them. But without that um, uh, bob to it, you know, Um, they had the... Well, it was weird. You're going to... Okay, you are the hair guru. Mm
0: -hmm. You are the Zohan. Um,
1: (laughs) I don't remember there being the short bobs for the flappers the short straight bobs but i remember like i'm thinking pin curls but pin curls were for the 40s right
0: no so pink oh see learning learning so happening. um so pin curls came after the finger waves
1: and when did and the finger waves f- the finger
0: waves started so okay so finger waves hit their their height of popularity in the 20s um, but actually, finger waves had been progressing from uh, the, um, the late 1800s with Marcel in France, who developed his Marcel iron, mm. um, to create a more naturalized and uniform curl,
1: okay. um,
0: rather than doing uh, doing wet setting with rags, is how you used to curl hair. And then you had Marcel in front, In France, who was doing, you know, the the Victorian, like, saloon girl type looks that you're thinking of Mm -hmm. that would then progress into the 1900s Gibson look. Um, And then with the 20s, when the 20s hit, that's when the Marcel Iron became readily available. So we had people who could afford a Marcel Iron would put basically curls in their hair that they could brush out and it could kind of look like waves. Well, when the flappers came around, the flappers didn't have money to buy these irons. So they started developing a way to set them wet by doing the finger waves. Well, when people started wanting to get that finger wave look, but maybe they were a little more classy, they wanted to um, keep, like, it was basically how do we combine this, like, lavish, old style with this new style that's maybe for the poorer girl, but make it look more expensive. Well, that's where we started finger, uh, sorry, pin curling the hair um, at the ends because it wasn't super short like the flappers would, but we kind of wanted to be in style. Um, And so basically finger waves and pin curls kind of are like, they're, they're kind of one in the same. And so a lot of people think that twenties is just, Finger waves, um, but it's it's not. Okay. Um, I could go into a real deep tangent. Well, I... But basically what this style was is um, you had the 20s. As it progressed into the 30s, it was a more brushed out look. The 20s were very much wet and stiff. Um, but when we started moving into the 30s, we were like, actually, we want that movement back that we had before. Um, so that's where you kind of had that brushed out like, coiffed look where it was like kind of tight around the head and then you had around the front and in the back kind of being softer more curly more of that pin curl look
1: okay yeah because I, I and looking even at photos I was like there's longer hair and it's curly and that but I was like
0: it's because these Hell people no. are ritzy, like your chorus yes, girls exactly. would still have short hair because yes, they're... Yes, like when
1: they would come in with Jimmy, when it was all like his friends.
0: hmm it... Well, think about nowadays, like not all like stylish people have the exact same haircut. So it's how can we create theme and variation? And it was very much, well, how can I like look more luxurious? And mm-hmm. part of that was keeping longer hair because longer hair required more to take care of, which meant you had more means.
1: Fair. Um, it just makes the last thing I want to mention seem like almost irrelevant, uh, which is I love the three-piece suits. <laughs> I love a good three-piece suit. It's a good suit, um, especially um, the person suit I'm thinking of the most. I loved was Cookies. Um, he was in and out of a jacket all the time, but he was never without a vest,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he just looked ridiculous. Like he he was your typical go-to mobster in a vest um if that makes a, any sense you know like mm-hmm. he had to be in a vest you know all i needed now was like a mustache and a stogie and, and rah, sing, a machine know. gun rah, not even good. a machine gun just like standing <laughs> there with those hands on his head i'm in a musical rah, you know yeah so um well let's just chug right along into the lighting which i thought was gorgeous It was it was wavy and go no Um, it
0: was I mean it was finger
1: waved you
0: know what you wanted the history I did no
1: it was interesting (laughs) it was good our listeners just got like the whole history there this is what we're about
0: they got a brief overview but that's neither here nor there the lighting the The lighting lighting was very musical comedy like it was very bright it was very warm
1: yes it was a good the, the hues were a good mix of purples and blues. Um, which were really nice, and it was... um, It just felt very smooth and relaxed, like a fine whiskey. Um, Which was... (laughs) Well, no, it it did, and... um, It it just... um, I I remember, that you know, there were bright moments, you know, a lot of the scene, a lot of the dialogues, like, they were... There were bright moments, but I just remember, like, a lot of the big dance numbers, I just remember... Just these beautiful hues of purples and pinks and blues that just, I don't know, it, it, when I think of jazz, I, I should say upbeat jazz, you know, that Gershwin bouncy jazz, that city, New York City of the 20s jazz, I can see those purples and blues and pinks and that, you know. Mm-hmm,
0: but those like warmer tones. Yeah, 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 you know, Yeah.
1: so um, I want to talk about Kathleen Marshall and her direction. Oh God, I hope I got her name right. I, I swung for the fences. It was Kathleen Marshall. Yeah! Yay! Look, I remembered a name. I don't do that often. Um, I think she had a great understanding of the mood and the time, which is important because um, it's a comedy of the time. It's a comedy of the Playboy mentality, you know, and of the movement of the time. You know, it, you weren't seeing a comedy um, of like of the now. When we saw the show, you know, it, it was very much... It, I mean, obviously it was set back in the 20s, but, like, it it was from the 20s. All the humor, all the wordplay and all that. They didn't make jokes that were referencing things of now.
0: Yes. Even though it was written in, in the, the, the modern net. time, yeah. they definitely used the writing style from um, the 20s.
1: Yes. And they... All their, like, the 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 humor and the movements i mean that that's the pratfall you know the big eyes the face the slapstick. slapstick yeah that was all and so she understood all of that she understood how to make jimmy be a playboy without making him seem like a a, a dick i know? was going
0: to say a pompous tool but yeah, yeah you know
1: like he wasn't like a heart <laughs> like a womanizer that you despise
0: yeah because she knew that in the end you had to find something you liked about him
1: so she understood how all that worked, you know, and that really, to me, made the story and the comedy and all the acting elements really stand out. You know, that's what made it all so successful. When you've got a timely piece, you know, it can be hard sometimes. It can feel very dated in the worst way. This felt right. We, f- we knew we were going back in time, but we, we were entertained by the simple joke. You know, we
0: went back there willingly.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a reason why dad jokes work, and this was chock full of dad jokes. <laughs> you know, I also loved that, that that she did a great job of mostly marrying all the design elements together. There was a few moments here and there that I was like, oh, that didn't quite mesh well, but on the whole, they all met together and they were all working and all, you know building each other up it was just one one upping like raising each other up which is how theater should work shouldn't Mm -hmm. outshine the other it should be working to to add in and 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 build um so i think because of that the show as a whole as a whole was a delightful experience
0: good yeah. yeah um i think that with everything that's been said I think we're missing something, but I don't think it's an important thing.
1: I swear on all that totally, if you don't let me mention the music, I will throw (laughs) everything right now.
0: Oh, the music. Well, I mean, I My husband's
1: music demands to be heard. It
0: was...
1: (laughs) We got to talk about the music. It's Gershwin. Oh, my God. It's Gershwin.
0: Oh, I love Gershwin. What is it you love about Gershwin?
1: I love everything about Gershwin. Did you not do that opening and sing with me? I I love Gershwin. My favorite song, Rhapsody in Blue. Oh my God, Gershwin. I don't think I've ever heard anything that Gershwin's written, whether it be actual music or music and lyrics by both George and Ira, that I've been like, "Mm, man, they missed the mark on that. No. Love, just, God, his music is amazing. If I had to go to a desert island, and like, you know, you can only take three things, one of them would definitely be like a collection of Gershwin music. I yeah, some of the orchestrations did bother me at first um,
0: fascinating at, rhythm yeah comes the to fact mind.
1: That, yeah because fascinating rhythm is meant to be like this asymmetrical rhythm it's it's a fascinating rhythm and they they kind of ironed it out um, to be the, the syncopation was almost taken out a little bit. But, I get it. Like, re-listening to it and everything. I was like, no, I see it. It works better with the movement. It works better with the scene. No, I I, I see. Like, it was one of those things in the the moment, it caught me off guard. It was abrasive. But after digesting it, I went, I see what you did. Mm -hmm. Not my favorite thing, but I understand it. Mm -hmm. This is one of those moments where I can see a show and go, I didn't particularly enjoy this, but I know why, but I understand it. So did it serve the show? Did it work? Yes. Did I personally like it? My opinion is I was like, no, I, this wasn't for me, but that's because I like the song. But I didn't... If it was but, your
0: first time hearing fascinating rhythm. Well, but
1: I. But the, the song isn't the show. Right. So the show as a whole, it worked fine. If I was going to see just the song, I'd be like, this is blasphemy. No, that's not the case. So that's why I was like... No, I'm the one in the wrong. This song works fine. But please, anyone, if you're performing fascinating rhythm, don't do it this way on its own. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: in the realms of the show, oh, yeah, no, because it worked well with the choreography, the movement, staging, all of that made sense. I've always
0: wondered how one would dance to the original...
1: Original rhythm of it? Yeah. You aim for the accents. You... You...
0: Yeah, but I think it's hard to dance just on the accents. It is hard to dance on just the accents. Well, uh,
1: just to go on a tangent, being an old soul, <laughs> I think this is why I absolutely like a love, a love. I love the golden era of like Hollywood to see what they could do and did do. Just the things that they were able to accomplish, because I think I think that that there that question is it. I think that's it. I think that is a brilliant question. We probably could pull up a video from the 1910s and 20s of someone dancing to Gershwin's Fascinating Rhythm. Like, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But then, like, you just posed it in 2022. How does one do that? Well, hundred years ago, that's how they did it.
0: Well, and I think the other thing that's going on here is each, you know, generation has preferred sounds and tones and rhythms that they like to hear
1: absolutely and
0: so it can be hard for someone in 2020 to understand what was appealing about something from 1920 there might be spots that you like you can understand and you like but overall like it's the same reason why i love i'm not the biggest fan of golden era musicals but the moment they're reorchestrated i tend to like them better
1: well it was like when i was in college and i had a band director who was breaking down disco like this is the important part of the drum kit like this is the beat that you need to drive home so the rest of the ensemble this is the part that they need to drive at and i went i've never heard someone explain a style of music like that that that's that's the the, the bit that drives the song you know, mm-hmm. it's actually the hi-hat that you know, and it's not the bass or it's not the snare or, you know, or the bass line. It's actually the, tss, 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 you know, and I was like, wow, that's one of the smartest things like I've ever heard. So, you know, and I'm not saying that the hi-hats always, but you know. No, but
0: for the 70s, for the disco. Right,
1: that's, that's the sound. That's the rhythm or something like that. And I think that just goes to your point about like hundred years ago, syncopation jazz being new, that might've been just. Everyone had it in their ear and they all can move to that beat. Now, if we brought someone from the 1920s to now and they were hearing like EDM or something, they might be like, I don't know how to move, how to feel this beat. Mm -hmm. You know, dum, dum, dum. I don't understand that. You know, they might not. Like, it's like when the beat drops in a song. Mm -hmm. We all can anticipate it. We all can feel it. Mm-hmm. Maybe other people from another time, I'm sure they can't. They can't anticipate that because they haven't heard that before. But like you said, you know, how do you move to something? I mean, I can hear... But I'm an old soul and I'm a Gershwin fan. I can hear where those syncopations, where those breaks, where those lifts are. Because I can, I, I can hear the da 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 running in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's the brilliance of Gershwin. I, and I'm sorry that we're doing a TED Talk about... Breaking down music, but I, I think this is the important questions that should be asked, not just about the show or about Gershwin, but about musical theater as a whole. Because well,
0: and what you, I think it goes to helping you understand like what you like in something because everything at the end of the day is all a flavor. Some of us like garlic, some of us don't.
1: Well, it's like just another side tangent. Why is it when we bring pop music to the stage? same song you heard on the radio but they bring it to the stage and all of a sudden you might like it more or like it less what is it about it it could be the same song what changed Mm -hmm. understanding that what separates pop from musical theater you know that could be a whole nother episode but I'm glad that you asked that question because that's important that's a brilliant question so um, screeching back into nice work if you can get it the last thing I want to say and I, I just love pointing this out because i don't think this is uh, ever, like as present as as ever obviously on broadway but i i love the orchestra I, and it just had that big band sound you know it's mm-hmm. it harkens to a different time it's fun to hear not necessarily an electric orchestra but just that full sound you know the brass the saxophones the piano the strings the, yeah just not not a symphonic orchestra, but a big band orchestra, you know, so and that was
0: fun. The show has had several notable performers, including Matthew Broderick, Kelly O'Hara, Jesse Mueller, Judy Kay, Michael McGrath, and Estelle Parsons. <laughs>
1: Let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history
0: um i think as far as a theatrical impact i mean we keep coming back to the same question what exactly do we mean by impact and i think that if we're talking about impact being changed theater or progressed theater um i don't think it was impactful that way but that doesn't mean it didn't have an impact
1: If it left an impression or it changed the course or what did it contribute to or how is it remembered, la 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 la. And to me, I think the the theatrical impact that it had is it was another great George and Ira Gershwin show. You know, um, when you look at the, the Mount Rushmore Musical Theater which is more than definitely four heads, <laughs> you know. Um, George and Ira are definitely on there. And seeing what shows either they wrote or have used their material, I think this is one of the ones that, that made the impact, to be able to, to take their material and create another show. Because like you said, a lot of their music was part of a musical review, not necessarily of a musical, because at that time the traditional book musicals, we know it now, the situation story. Was being story. figured out. Right. And so, there's so many opportunities to take their music and and, and, and run with it. You can there, There's endless opportunities to just, here's a story and we're going to use Gershwin's music because it doesn't apply to a story. It's not like some of these modern musicals like Miss Saigon or Dear Evan Hansen or Rent mm-hmm. where it's like this song only applies in this show. These are like standards, and we can take those songs, and we can put Mm -hmm. it into the story.
0: Mm -hmm. And so, well, and I think it's important. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I think it's important to realize in us talking about you know, um, new musicals and jukebox musicals, the musical theater format started more like a jukebox musical type where we had these songs that existed and or maybe just these feelings of songs that existed and then we added and inserted them sort of yeah i mean
1: you have vaudeville which is basically a collection of acts that had nothing to do with each other
0: Mm -hmm. it could be a
1: song could be a dance could be a magic trick whatever and when you got to Musical theater, it was more of a collection of stories that were, what bound them together was a common composer, per se. Common
0: composer, or, like, a common feeling, like, we're gonna do... (laughs) A review
1: about America, or something. Yes. But there wasn't necessarily like, a, a common story. You didn't have characters going on a journey. And so, I mean, that... We're, we're, we're delving way into, like, musical theater history, but they called it the situation show when you actually told, like, a full-on story and characters mm-hmm. went on a journey, mm-hmm. you know. Prior to that, you just had these composers just writing songs, and they would, you know, that's when you got, like, George White Scandals or just, you know, the review of 1938 or what you know. And so... You didn't get a, a, a lot of shows... You know, Gershwin didn't necessarily write a lot of musicals as we know them today.
0: Correct. Well, and so what I, I guess what I'm saying is it the impact that nice work if you can get it made is reminding us that you know at one point in time the American Songbook was the spice and seasonings to create these stories.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so we, this is just another example of being able to create a new dish out of this. You know, mm-hmm. and there's nothing to say that in like two or three years, another show comes along that has these same songs, different story, different orchestrations, different whatever it may be, but it could have the same songs. I can't tell you how many times, you know, they've used the song, uh, someone to watch over me, you know, uh, crazy for you, which is a musical that was written in 1992, mm-hmm. clearly not by George Gershwin. He long passed by them, but you know, that song has been in numerous shows. No, yeah. And it was in this one, in, in, in Nice Work If You Can Get It. and, um, But also in 1992 in, in Crazy for You. So, yeah. The, the, their music, along with others, can be rearranged, repurposed, whatever to serve it. I don't think I, well, I'll say you can't really get that necessarily out of a lot of modern composers per se. Um, wow, we are just philosophizing our
0: off today. Are we philosophizing or are we making implications based on historical details?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm feeling smart. <laughs> Speaking of smart, let's go to societal impact. And I want to say this because it's my favorite. It introduced another generation to the music of George and Ira Gershwin. Um, what I'm amazed at is I think people don't realize how much they hear their music just in their daily life whether it be in like tv ads or movies or even like in other songs you know and then mm-hmm. they go see a show like this because they might go for like matthew broderick or something
0: or kelly o'hara or
1: kelly o'hara or you know who whoever else is still parsons um and they go oh my gosh i've heard this song oh my gosh i've heard this song you know and it's like yes yes you have because this is very popular the American Songbook is not just musical theater. The American Songbook is like a, is the collection of like songs that define America in general. So, it just happens to be a lot of musical theater songs from from the early 1900s to the I'll say the 1940s, 50s because that's where a lot of the songs came from at that time. This is before like, pop music as we know it today.
0: Right. It wasn't, if you wanted to hear new songs, you went to the theater or a musical theater review. Right.
1: The people who were writing the pop songs wrote for the theater.
0: Yes, because they weren't, they weren't having concerts necessarily of.
1: You didn't have the big stadium tours and such.
0: Exactly. So you'd go to, you'd see it in a movie or you'd see it. Well, not always in a movie because silent film and when movies came about, but... You'd you want to would hear go... the latest
1: Gershwin song and they were playing at the Cause, Alvin Theater. Exactly, because yeah. they didn't
0: necessarily have it on the radio regularly This was or... back in the
1: days of the records. Where at the time, I mean, I mean even if we're going to go before records, like they, you'd buy sheet music because every house had a piano. So you'd go and hear the song played then you'd buy the music and you'd play it. Or you'd go to someone and you'd hear the music played, you know? So mm-hmm. this is before CDs and MP3s and, dare I say, cassettes.
0: Well, and what it was is it was instead of being like, oh, this is my music and I'm going to listen to it, there was less, it was less about personal ownership of music and more about music as a community experience because it you couldn't put it on for just you to listen.
1: I'm feeling a Berlin moment coming from you.
0: Well, okay, so Berlin is one of my favorites, and a lot of people, you know, if they know anything by Irving Berlin, they go, oh, White Christmas, right? But Berlin also had a lot of songs that are reused and repurposed and um, whatnot in, uh, in everyday life, and I would say almost every single American knows at least one or two Irving Berlin songs, Like, God Bless America. America.
1: Alexander's Ragtime Band. I
0: mean, I wouldn't say that's one that most Americans know, but you know what I mean? So it's kind of that, it's along those same lines, and this is where this infectious, like, flocking to a type of music started to become created. Because before that, really what we had, you know, was there was kind of music, and everyone kind of wrote music, but music was just music. It didn't, it wasn't, severely um, broken down into these categories and then subcategories. You know, you had popular music and you had not popular music. You had, you know, I guess, legit music and poor man's music.
1: Well, it was like, it's music you heard in the home and then it's like music you heard in the bars.
0: Exactly. And this is where we started to really um, get people who were becoming, like, instead of music just being something that happened in their life and they would occasionally listen upon. This era is when people started to become borderline obsessive with music and wanting to Music
1: was becoming something for everyone, accessible e- for everyone, exactly. not just for the wealthy. Yeah. Exactly. So, bringing back my point, it brought another generation to the music of gershman because they they were hearing it and they were recognizing it, and hopefully they went and, and they wouldn't hear more of it because he's not just a great Broadway composer, but he's just a great composer in general. So much music for him, uh, uh, from him, that, uh, how much time do you have, you know? <laughs> um, so just bringing, the, bringing it around, struggling back. Um, is the show still relevant? Though I absolutely love the music. I don't think this show is needed or has a place right here on Broadway. This show. Gershwin and his music always has a place here on The Great White Way. Always. I mean, for God's sake, there's a theater named after them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, him. Them. I'd say them because it just says the Gershwin Theater. I don't think it's the George Gershwin Theater. The Gershwins, the George and Ira Gershwin Theater. Um, but I'm just not sure if this show is the one that is needed right now. You know, I think this show is perfect for regional, collegiate, even high school theater, though, you know, and it's perfect for exposing audiences to a pivotal part of the Great American Songbook. I mean, perfect. It's I think audiences, particularly like in a regional theater, would love to see the show because it's just good old fashioned fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But just with the, the current season and 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 with the place where- for on Broadway mm. it's like mm, nah that's my opinion okay doesn't have to be yours doesn't have to be yours listener that's my opinion I don't have millions of dollars to produce shows so you know would I buy a ticket if they brought it back it's still Gershwin you know I would I would buy a ticket to I listen to rats play strings of Gershwin in the park so <laughs>
0: as promised we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show
1: so we had the good fortune of getting to see the show once back in 2012 and you remember the rain the rain or as lee goldberg said yesterday on on the news the deluge the deluge in times square i i was watching the The news last night when you came home and you were like, it was pouring rain. And when I came out the theater, and I was like, actually, it was a deluge. As they, (laughs) uh, it was raining hard that night, remember? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And um, I remember, you know, the show was great, it was a lot of fun. I think, if memory serves me right, this was our first show at the Imperial.
0: I don't think it was our first one. uh,
1: No, Billy Elliot was.
0: Yeah, I don't think this was our first one at the Imperial, but this was our first time being back to the Imperial with a new show.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I think Billy Elliot was the first show we saw at the Imperial, and this was the first one to to head in after. Um, But I remember seeing the show, and then I remember we went afterwards, up 45th, around the corner. out, Yeah, 45th, around the corner, 46th. Yes. And we went to go do the kiss and cry line, and it's just pouring rain. But I do remember Matthew Broderick coming out in that striped shirt. Mm-hmm. And he just looked like such, almost like a little kid, because he was just soaking wet, but he signed everything. He was so nice. And Kelly O'Hara was so sweet. I mean, talk about just the as sweetest as pie actress. You know, they were all just so nice, but it, again, rain. So, we. We are loving the way things are continuing to go and and hope that you out there can join us in a seat at a theater soon.
0: I'm sure you'll be able to catch Nice Work if you can get it somewhere at a theater near you sometime in the future.
1: And we also want to let you know that if you're feeling giving and you want to become a producer, you can sign up for our backstage pass
0: simply visit patreon.com slash for details about this
1: we greatly appreciate all of your generosity because we could not do the show without you so until next time I'm Andrew Cortez
0: and I'm Hope Bird
1: reminding you to
0: turn off your cell phones unwrap your candies and keep your mask on and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper thank you If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe.
1: You can also find us on
0: Facebook, Instagram,
1: and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod.
0: And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com.
1: Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues, Sophie Tucker, Mela, Kevin McLeod, and Billy Murray.